the Yale Law Journal podcast. I'm Austin Regan, a first-year editor on the journal and co-host of this episode. And I'm Becca Steele, the journal's podcast editor. On this episode, we'll be speaking with several Yale Law Journal authors about their works relating to elections and the right to vote. We'll also be speaking with local activists whose work involves advocacy on these important issues. The questions we're tackling today relate to how and where citizens' votes are counted. Specifically, how we should decide whether the way electoral districts are drawn represent minority groups proportionally. And prison malapportionment, the practice of counting people who are incarcerated as residents of the voting district they are imprisoned in instead of their home district. These questions about how electoral districts are drawn and which districts citizens' votes are counted in have major implications for our elections and democracy. That's right. A little bit later, we'll be joined by Alice Shakar, author of the comment, Prison Malapportionment, Forging a New Path for State Courts, to discuss how prison malapportionment can undermine the constitutional principle of one person, one vote, and how litigants can fight against it by bringing claims under state law. Also joining that discussion is Justin Farmer, a member of the Hamden, Connecticut Legislative Council, who is also a plaintiff in a recent federal case challenging Connecticut's prison malapportionment scheme. First, we'll be speaking with Professor Nicholas Stephanopoulos of Harvard Law School. His research and teaching interests include election law, constitutional law, administrative law, legislation, and comparative law. His work is particularly focused on the intersection of democratic theory, empirical political science, and the American electoral system. He is the co-author of the article, The Race-Blind Future of Voting Rights, with University of Michigan political science professor Joey Chen. There, Stephanopoulos and Chen argue that the adoption of a race-blind baseline for adjudicating racial gerrymandering claims could have major consequences on democratic representation in the United States. Professor Stephanopoulos, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. To start us off, can you speak briefly about what racial gerrymandering is and how it persists despite federal legislation like the Voting Rights Act? Yeah, so the, the manipulation of district lines in order to disadvantage a particular racial group has been going on for a very long time. Uh, really, as soon as uh, would-be racially discriminatory government officials were prohibited from just disenfranchising racial minority members, they switched to schemes of racial vote dilution. So the essence of racial vote dilution is using drawing district lines in such a way that a minority group's electoral influence is diminished or uh, entirely eliminated. Uh, the key to all racial vote dilution is either over-concentrating minority members in a very small number of districts or dispersing the racial minority members over a large number of districts where their preferred candidates consistently lose in the election. Uh, so really, it's the, the cracking or the packing through district lines of racial minorities. Uh, that's how racial vote dilution operates. Why has it been around for uh, so long despite the passage of the Voting Rights Act? Well, because the Voting Rights Act doesn't make unlawful all racial vote dilution. It only makes unlawful racial vote dilution when a whole series of, of doctrinal criteria are satisfied. And sometimes it's quite difficult for plaintiffs to satisfy all those criteria. And so in all sorts of jurisdictions around the country, racially dilutive district maps and other policies remain in effect 
notwithstanding the Voting Rights Act, uh, because it is so hard to establish liability under current law. You say that for over 30 years, claims in federal court alleging racial gerrymandering under the Voting Rights Act have been resolved in a pretty consistent manner. Basically, what happens is a minority racial group challenges a state's legislative map as unlawful, and then in adjudicating that claim, a judge will consider the share of the state's population comprised of that minority group and compare it with the share of the state's legislative districts controlled by that minority group. So, for example, if African Americans comprise 25% of a state's population, but only control 10% of that state's legislative districts, there's a pretty compelling claim that the state has been racially gerrymandered. Uh, But this way of assessing racial gerrymandering claims may be changing. And with an increasingly conservative Supreme Court, we may see the adoption of a so-called race-blind standard of assessment. Can you tell us what a race-blind assessment would mean and where this idea first gained traction? Uh, Sure. Uh, And I should clarify before getting to the question of the race blind baseline or the proportionality uh, benchmark that you mentioned, uh, there are all sorts of antecedent doctrinal factors. Uh, So a minority group that's suing can easily lose a Voting Rights Act claim, even if the group is disproportionately underrepresented, if the group fails to satisfy any of the antecedent criteria. But once you get to that analysis, it currently works under existing law exactly as you described. You compare the minority group's share of the population to the share of legislative seats uh, controlled by that group. Uh, The way the race-blind baseline would work instead is that you would take the share of seats currently controlled by a group, and then you wouldn't compare it to the group's share of the population Instead, you would compare it to the share of legislative seats that you would typically expect the group to win if the district lines had hypothetically been drawn in a completely race-blind manner. So, for example, if a group controls 20% of the seats right now, but given a race-blind redistricting process, the group would control uh, only 15% of the seats then the group's claim would all but collapse. Uh, The group is already, in that case, overrepresented relative to the baseline of of a race-blind redistricting process. Uh, So that's the proposal uh, on the table. It's been proposed or advocated most notably by Judge Easterbrook, uh, the prominent law law professor turned Seventh Circuit judge, Uh, In a case about a decade ago uh, called Gonzalez v. City of Aurora, uh, he suggested replacing the proportionality baseline of current law with this alternative race-blind baseline. Different states have different strategies for drawing their legislative maps, but up until very recently, it remained a challenge for states to generate maps that could account for various criteria like contiguity, compactness, equal population, and the integrity of city and county lines. So what in the last decade or so has changed technologically to allow map drawers to do this kind of work now? And how do those changes in technology feed the argument for or against race-blind assessments of gerrymandering claims? Yeah, great. Uh, So redistricting technology uh, has been getting more sophisticated by the year. 
Uh, the really big revolutionary advance over the last decade is the emergence, not just of computer programs, uh, but of randomized uh, redistricting through computer algorithms. Uh, the software before wouldn't produce on its own a district map. Uh, a user still had to go through and create the districts one by one. Uh, the new computer algorithms can be programmed and then instructed to uh, spit out district maps pursuant to whatever parameters uh, the, the programmer specifies. Uh, interestingly, those computer algorithms, to my knowledge, have barely, if at all, been used by actual line drawers in the real world. Uh, they've tended to trust their human experience, human judgment over a sort of computer algorithmic process. Uh, but this technology is unbelievably promising because the, the universe of district maps is effectively infinite. And so even the savviest human line drawer is extremely limited in the portion of that universe that they can survey. Uh, a computer, a randomized algorithm, on the other hand, can pursue so many more possibilities. It can open up so many possibilities that aren't apparent to a human line drawer. Uh, and so to date, that technology has been used more by academics and by litigants to try to identify unlawful maps. Uh, in the future, that technology can be used for all sorts of other purposes. Uh, for example, to design gerrymanders that are unbelievably biased in a particular party's favor, but do a good job in terms of lots of other line drawing criteria. Uh, on the flip side, they could also be used by good government line drawers, by independent commissions, for example, uh, to produce maps that are far better than any human can produce. Uh, so there's enormous promise and enormous uh, pitfalls as well with this new technology. We'd like to take a look at an example to see how this race-blind analysis works in practice. You argue in your piece that Alabama is a quintessential example to illustrate the effects that adoption of a race-blind baseline would have for states. You note that, like many of the states in your study, Alabama was formerly covered by Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, and it has a large but minority African-American population and has a state legislative map that was enacted by a unified Republican government in 2011 during the last round of redistricting. Can you illustrate for us how the current legislative map in Alabama drawn under the racial proportionality standard would change if a race-blind standard were adopted? Uh, sure. Um, so for all the reasons you said, Alabama is a perfect example. Big black population, Republican district map, coverage in the old days under Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. Uh, so currently, the, the current Alabama state house map uh, has 27 black opportunity districts, where an opportunity district is one where black voters are able to elect the candidate of their choice. Of course, this map was produced in the shadow of the current proportionality baseline. So efforts, uh, race-conscious efforts, were made in Alabama to design lots of uh, black opportunity districts. Uh, when you tell uh, the algorithm, match all of the non-racial characteristics of the existing Alabama plan, but ignore race altogether, uh, what you find is a distribution. You, know, you, don't, you don't always get the same number of black opportunity districts in the computer-generated maps. 
Uh, but the median number you get is something like 23. Uh, so from that, we learn that if the race-blind baseline were adopted, Alabama would likely see a substantial decrease in black representation, a substantial decrease in the number of districts where black voters are able to uh, control the outcome of the election. Now, we also, uh, in the paper, examined what the partisan consequences would be of switching from the status quo to the race-blind baseline. And what we find there is that uh, Alabama would have several more Republican districts under the race-blind baseline. Uh, specifically, the median number of Republican districts would increase by four. Uh, and so this is kind of a coincidence that the decrease in black opportunity districts in Alabama under the race-blind baseline is exactly equal to the increase in the number of Republican districts in Alabama under the race-blind baseline. Um, and there's a reason for that equivalence, which is that in areas in the Deep South, like Alabama, where voting is extremely racially polarized, if you disband a black opportunity district, uh, then you're engulfing the black Democratic voters among adjacent white conservative Republican voters. And uh, as soon as those districts are no longer able to elect the black preferred candidate, who's virtually always a Democrat, what happens? Well, then those districts elect Republicans. Uh, in a polarized environment like Alabama, one of the only ways to, uh, to get a Democratic district is to draw a black opportunity district. Uh, and so if you eliminate black opportunity districts, which is what happens with the race-blind baseline, you also eliminate Democratic districts and end up with quite a few more Republican districts in the race-blind map. Thanks for talking us through that result, which isn't exactly intuitive. We'd like to end on one forward-looking question, especially given that states are about to undergo another round of redistricting following the 2020 census. Given the potential for this conservative Supreme Court to adopt a race-blind construction of the Voting Rights Act, how do you think map drawers around the country, be they legislatures or commissions, should be thinking about their legal obligations as they undertake redistricting? It's a really interesting question because you're asking what should states do in a legal environment where the current law is one thing, but there's a decent probability that the law will change in the relatively near future, given the, the conservative and textualist uh, court that we have. Uh, and so I think the answer is going to vary with the sort of ideological predisposition of the jurisdiction. Uh, so states that like the Voting Rights Act as it's currently construed I would imagine, would ignore the possibility that the race-blind baseline might be adopted in the future. Uh, they would say, we have to follow current law. And the doctrine on the books instructs us to consider race, to quite heavily consider race, uh, in order to get close to proportionality uh, for minority voters. Um, so I expect, for example, blue states independent commissions in places like Arizona or California to ignore my article, uh, to ignore the possibility of change in the, the law of voting rights. On the other hand, then you have jurisdictions that might really dislike 
the Voting Rights Act is currently construed. Simplifying, this might include a lot of red states in the South uh, that have challenged aspects of the Voting Rights Act before, uh, that are repeatedly involved in Voting Rights Act litigation. They're not the biggest fan of this statute, uh, which to them appears to restrict their policymaking discretion. Uh, so I could see some of these states deciding that, well, we'll take our chances and not follow current law and do something close to what the race-blind baseline would permit us to do. And we're going to get sued, of course, if we do that. You know, uh, uh, civil rights groups and other parties will immediately file lawsuits. Uh, but these states might like their chances in litigation. Uh, they might think that uh, if they tell uh, the initial fact finder and later the Supreme Court that, you know what, current law is flawed, current law should be replaced by the race-blind baseline, they might think that argument has a fair chance of success with the current court. Uh, and there's a real payoff if they're right about that uh, likelihood of legal change, which is that they'll be able to uh, reduce the number of minority opportunity districts if they dislike having those districts. And maybe more appealing, they'll be able to increase the number of Republican districts uh, thanks to what I uh, described before are the, uh, the partisan consequences of the race-blind baseline. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Stephanopoulos. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We turn now to the issue of how the placement of prisons throughout a state and the counting of incarcerated persons as residents of those prisons can lead to malapportioned legislative maps. We are joined today by Alice Shakar. She's a 2020 graduate of the Yale Law School and author of the piece, Prison Malapportionment, Forging a New Path for State Courts. We're also joined by Justin Farmer. He was a plaintiff in the 2019 federal case NAACP versus Merrill, challenging Connecticut's prison malapportionment scheme as unconstitutional. He's also a member of the Hamden, Connecticut Legislative Council and an activist with the NAACP Connecticut State Chapter. Welcome to you both. Ala, I'll start with you. Can you introduce listeners to what prison malapportionment is and why, as you argue, it's a problem? So starting with the foundation, political districts in this country must be drawn by population under the 14th Amendment Equal Pop equal protection clause, there is an equal population mandate. So that means there can't be a district in a state with 10,000 people who have one representative and then another district with 1,000 people who have a representative. And so prison malapportionment is the malapportioned map that results when incarcerated individuals are counted towards the population of the prisons where they are held versus their home communities where they come and maintain legal residence. And the result is that representational power shifts from the home communities where incarcerated individuals come from to the prison districts. Essentially, the prison districts get this extra population bump. And the other districts, particularly the home communities, have districts where their votes are diluted and their representational power is significantly taken away. In your piece, you use this great analogy of how the population of Manhattan almost doubles every single workday. Could you describe that analogy a little bit and how it applies to prison malapportionment? It 
it's not enough to just have purely equal numbers. These numbers also must accurately reflect where people should be counted. And so I give the analogy of, for instance, say that the state of New York, when it was redistricting, said that anyone who commutes into Manhattan is going to be counted towards the population of Manhattan, even if they live, for instance, say in Staten Island or Queens, even just another borough in New York City. Thousands of people commute into Manhattan every single day. And if every single person who commuted commuted was counted towards the population of Manhattan, the population of Manhattan would nearly double, essentially. And as a result, since, as I mentioned, political districts are drawn based on population, the political power of Manhattan would also double because they've now doubled their population. And so there's a question of where, well, when, where do we count these commuters? Do we count them as the Manhattan population or do we count them in their home districts where they maintain their ties, where they're part of a community, where they live? And so the question of where is also fundamental to the equal population principle. It's not enough to just say, well, if we have an equal number of people in Manhattan and then an equal number in this district that encompasses several other cities in New York, then we've satisfied the mandate, the constitutional mandate. And so prison malapportionment comes down to defining that standard of where incarcerated people truly should be counted. And that's not where they are merely being forcibly detained by the state, but rather where they maintain their home communities, where many states still recognize as their legal residents. I think a lot of people who have heard of prison malapportionment have probably heard of it under the moniker prison gerrymandering. And prison malapportionment implicates many of the same concerns as gerrymandering, but you note that the terms cannot and should not be used interchangeably. Can you talk us through that distinction? Colloquially, prison malapportionment has been known as prison gerrymandering or prison-based gerrymandering. In my, one of the things I do in my piece is try to reframe the debate as question of prison malapportionment. As I mentioned, malapportionment goes to the issue of whether there's vote dilution and whether certain districts have inflated population versus not. And that is precisely what the prison malapportionment problem is. Gerrymandering, on the other hand, distinctly deals with the manipulation of geographic boundaries when it comes to districting. Specifically, gerrymandering is known as you know the packing or cracking problem, And so gerrymandering is just a question of how we are drawing these maps and where we are placing these lines such that certain voter populations are placed in certain geographic locations versus prison malapportionment, which is truly just a question of vote dilution and population inflation. This question is for the both of you, and maybe, Justin, you can answer first. Prison malapportionment has pretty stark racial implications. Could you tell us about how the practice has impacted communities of color? I would say that um, it has had generational consequences. Um, You know, census is done every decade. Um, Most people, maybe in their lifetime, let's say we're all lucky, maybe you get through 10 census. That means that, that that has profound outcomes on everything from how much money does your community get for reading programs? How much money does your community get for food insecurity? Uh, what type of money goes towards secondary education? Um, so when you're talking about the Black diaspora, um, just the fact of 
money being allocated based off of how these political maps are drawn has huge consequences on what opportunities people can access uh, and where they can move. The second thing uh, being representation, um, we see this all the time that prisons are often built in suburban rural communities, often homogeneously white. So when you have communities, especially post-1970, where our legal system has become way more radicalized, you think of 70s, 80s, the 1990s war on drugs, early 2000s, you're talking about 40 or 50 years where you've just basically taken political power right after African-Americans have gotten the right to vote, and in many ways, taken away their collective power. Yeah, I would completely echo what Justin said, especially when you fold in the the racial dynamics of mass incarceration itself. Black and Latino communities are disproportionately incarcerated, and prisons, as Justin mentioned, have during the mass incarceration boom and the prison construction boom, many prisons were built in very white rural areas. And so the result of prison malapportionment isn't just representational power being taken from home communities of incarcerated individuals to prison districts. It is essentially representational power being taken disproportionately from black and Latino communities to prison districts that are disproportionately white. So both of you were part of a court case challenging this practice. Justin, you were a plaintiff in NAACP versus Merrill, a federal case here in Connecticut that argued prison malapportionment is unconstitutional. Could you tell us a bit about how you came to learn about prison malapportionment and how you became involved in that case? So I've had several family members incarcerated. One of my brothers, while he was incarcerated, we'd talk um, uh, throughout my childhood of him being incarcerated. And he talked about getting a postcard uh, from Pennsylvania um, and the prison he was staying in and how he got a welcome card, welcoming him to the community, letting him know when trash is picked up, about access to the local library, uh, tons of things. And it's about a teenager at this time. And we both laughed because it's like, we're not welcome there. It's like, heck, if I went there uh, and I'm not incarcerated, I'm like, I'm not welcome in this community. Um, So we both got a kick out of it. Uh, It was about 10 years later um, that I would be, uh, uh, nine years later that I'd be asked if I wanted to be a plaintiff in this case because my unique position of being a not only a person in one of the most heavily affected districts uh, 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 in Connecticut, but also being a legislator of color who also happens to have family members who are affected and have been affected. Um, So even before I even knew the words or terminologies, I already knew about the process and how, uh, how asinine it was. Uh, uh, And when the opportunity came up to represent my community and represent my family, uh, I, I, uh, I, I took it. Thanks for sharing that, Justin. 
Ala, you were on the legal team for that case and successfully argued before the Second Circuit that citizens have standing, citizens like Justin, have standing to bring these kinds of claims against state officials in federal court. Based on that experience, do you have anything to add about what reform to prison malapportionment means on the ground to real voters? Yeah, I think that Justin said it best. One of the really devastating aspects of prison malapportionment is that these communities that suffer the detrimental effects of over-incarceration, over-policing, not only have to suffer all of the disadvantages that come with being communities that, ju- that are disproportionately incarcerated and policed in the society, they also then are having their representational power significantly stripped and decreased to their detriment while it's while their power is being shifted to communities where prisons are located that have a reverse incentive. The real problematic aspect of prison malapportionment is that increased incarceration translates to increased representation for prison districts. And so there's an incentive to incarcerate so that more representation can be given to that district. And that problem is really why a lot of people have actually compared the practice to the three-fifths clause, because incarcerated individuals are in the same way that enslaved people were used merely as an opportunity to inflate the political power and population of Southern states. Incarcerated individuals are used to inflate the political and representational power of prison districts. And so what's very invidious about this practice is that these home communities suffer all the detriments of over-incarceration and over-policing. And on top of that, they also have decreased political representation and power and as a means and opportunity to address this. Ella, a major argument in your piece is that reformers seeking to end prison malapportionment who have uh, not had success in federal court should turn to the state courts. Um, But of course, when advocates for any social issue turn to the states to advance their cause after meeting resistance at the federal level, there's always concern that progress will be had in a very piecemeal, lopsided fashion. It'll be favored in some states, disfavored in others. And increasingly, these trends are mirroring the red state, blue state political divide. Are you concerned that turning to state courts will result in prison malapportionment reforms being undertaken only in more progressive jurisdictions? I think that's a valid consideration in any kind of state strategy. But I think with prison malapportionment, the strategy is broader than that. I don't think it's a one track strategy. I think it needs to be a multiple track policy, which includes state litigation, state legislation, and federal litigation. One of the things I talk about in my pieces, though, is that state court reform is particularly promising because it has a few procedural and substantive advantages to the federal court path. From the procedural aspect, the state court path, one thing that is very distinct about malapportionment cases in federal court Uh, that does not occur in just about mostly all other federal court cases is there is a federal statute, 28 U.S.C. Section 2284, that requires that any kind of federal malapportionment challenge must be heard by a three-judge district court, which is made up of a district judge and circuit judges as well. And whereas most cases go from federal court to circuit court to discretionary Supreme Court review under the federal statute, 
federal challenges to malapportionment go to automatic mandated Supreme Court review. And at a time when there's a lot of uncertainty about the future of the Supreme Court, both with a lot of, I think, the partisan politics around it, debates about court packing, debates about how the future of the Supreme Court looks like, there can be some anxiety, I think, about what an automatic Supreme Court review looks like, especially with a new fresh area of law that hasn't had a chance that won't have a chance to percolate across different federal courts and federal judges and standards to be developed in a way, for instance, that political partisan gerrymandering cases were able to. So state courts give the option of actually giving an opportunity to develop different standards in different cases. And yes, it would be a piecemeal approach, but that's actually one of, I think, the advantages because it gives an opportunity to develop more standards, more records in different courts and in different localities before it has to go automatically to the Supreme Court. And as and additionally, one thing that's really unique about the prison malapportionment landscape is that nearly every single state has some kind of statute, constitutional provision, or judicial policy that recognizes that incarcerated individuals maintain legal residence at their home communities, not at the place where they're where they're incarcerated. And so state courts have that promise. And substantively, while the federal constitution is always a floor of what our constitutional rights are, state courts can always go above that and be more protective than even the federal constitution. And we've seen that in cases such as Pennsylvania and North Carolina courts being more protective than the federal constitution with political gerrymandering. And so the state route offers several advantages as I mentioned, from the procedural and substantive side. And if you fold that into the fact that federal challenges can still continue, but think of this as a dual track approach, I think it's a lot more effective. Justin, I'm glad Alla brought up uh, the potential for legislative change uh, to resolve this issue. You've done quite a bit of activism at the state level. You're a voter, of course. You're a local office holder on the Hamden Legislative Council. You've also been a candidate for the state legislature. How have concerns about prison gerrymandering shaped your activism and your messaging? And do you find that this is something that uh, voters care about? You know, I think it's a, it's an issue that many people have in a multitude of ways. It's a very intersectional issue. Um, it's a very abstract issue uh, in a way that, uh, you know, I, I am a counselor, but I am no counselor. So um, we know that laws are predicated off of uh, uh, precedent. And something that is very frustrating is that there's a lot of legal precedent that's based in racism misogyny, homophobia, so on and so forth. Um, and, and this is one of those legacies that we see. It's no coincidence that out of the two states in our union that allow for prisoners to vote, they are homogeneously white. You know, the fact that you could vote in Vermont for over 15 years now uh, and be incarcerated for most crimes you're fine that wax in the face of everything when we're looking at places like Florida, where you literally have people who are model citizens for some people for 30, 40 years ago, they were accused of a felony. They, their record has been spotless. And they're told by these boards, yeah, nope, you don't get your vote uh, back, to, your right back to vote. Um, this is an issue that is important to many people. And I think for me, 
going through the process of working on the legislative side. Um, and then something that was very pinnacle to me uh, as a candidate, the next generation of voters uh, want to see systemic change. I, I see when we have conversations about resources and how some communities get resources and others don't, this question is, uh, is at the root of all of that, is that how can you represent communities if you don't see their disparities? And how can you see their disparities if you're messing with metrics to be able to favor one community over another? This last question is for both of you. Right now, we're seeing major public discussions happening around deficiencies in the criminal justice system and the way that we public, uh, punish convicts. We're also seeing a nationwide conversation about the right to vote and who gets to have their voice counted. And we've seen some intersection of these two conversations in the push for felon reenfranchisement in states that deny convicted felons the vote. Obviously, prison malapportionment is a distinct separate issue, but it largely touches on many of the same con uh, concerns pertaining to the sanctity of the right to vote and evolving attitudes about how to structure criminal justice. Do you see space in these efforts for reform on prison malapportionment? Can reform ride on some of that existing momentum? Absolutely. I think it's a resounding yes. I think that one thing that has been very clear from the conversation so far and Justin's comments is that these issues are all intertwined. At its basis, as I mentioned, the most devastating aspect of prison malapportionment is not just the vote dilution and the artificial inflated districts that result, um, but even more devastating than that is this tying of representation to incarceration, this incentivization of more incarceration for more representation for these districts. And certain and many very smart people like Peter Wagner, the Prison Policy Initiative, have done research and have found evidence, for instance, before New York State banned the practice of prison malapportionment via legislation, members of the legislature that represented prison districts were also more likely to reject and be an obstacle to prevent criminal justice reform efforts in New York State at the time. So the result is legislators that are representing prison districts that benefit from incarceration, in turn blocking criminal justice efforts. And the logic of this is that incarcerated individuals then, and which is why I mentioned the three-fifths compromise analogy earlier, is because incarcerated individuals are being used to increase representational power in ways that can be directly contrary to their own interests. And so criminal justice reform must also consider the really the invidious aspects of prison malapportionment and this misalignment and misincentivization of incarceration that results, especially when you fold in the racially disparate dynamics of prison malapportionment. You have legislators who never go into these prisons. Their constituents are these prisoners and have never visited, never saw what the conditions are, never asked about uh, situations, um, you know, there has to be room. Uh, there there has to be room for this conversation because it's all the conversations we have, whether it's the story of Khalif Browder, whether we're talking about Eric Garner and the use of chokeholds and legislatures are, are unwilling to move on these things. It has to be intersectional. It has to connect. I think there really has to be space uh, 
for this conversation to connect to other conversations um, because I feel like it is a way to to get people to really understand and and, and I'm hoping that these changes uh, you know come through legislatures being uh, I don't want to say courageous but forward thinking about preserving uh, uh, institutions. I think that's a really powerful note to end on. Justin and Ella, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your professional and personal insights into prison malapportionment. You've given us a lot to think about and offered some powerful suggestions on how we can make change on this incredibly concerning issue. We hope to see inroads made on both the litigation and legislative strategies that you've outlined for us today. So thank you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Yale Law Journal podcast is a production of the Yale Law Journal. Thanks to Ryan McAvoy and the wonderful folks at the Yale Broadcast Studio for making this production possible. If you like the show, don't forget to share it and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts.